discussion we're going to have over the next three segments of the, uh, of the Klein Files. Uh, we are going to talk about, and we know the national media is going to be listening to this, and, uh, uh, and so we want to preface everything that we say here today is that we're going today in the next three next to four three weeks. Uh, weeks, I think I think you said week four, we're going to have some type of a uh, question and answer. Yeah. Uh, you can call in your questions or you can email them. Um, I do an Instagram post that you can go drop a message and I'm uh, collecting all of them. So we'll address some of your most popular questions um, and, and tell you our thoughts on them. Now, every time we do this, um, we this case right here is the Dior Coons case uh, is, uh, is, is probably one of the most, uh, what's the word, Caroline, sought after? Yeah, the most asked about case, I think, that we've ever been in. the history in. of this company. I mean, yeah. we, we get calls and tips still to, to today, even though we're out of the case. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about the rumors about us getting back into the case. And the, um, uh, because we believe this case is fully solvable. Uh, we'll tell you the behind-the-scenes story of uh, what went on with uh, the lawsuit and with... Uh, uh, the people that were involved in the lawsuit and why they filed the lawsuit. See, it's not really, uh, it's not really public reason, re, um, public record, <laughs> public record, <laughs> why they, why they filed what they did. Uh, and there was a reason behind it. Uh, and, and, and the reasoning was successful. Uh, their attorney was uh, uh, not only nasty, but he was, uh, he had an objective. He's a criminal lawyer and he, does criminal work and he does some side work as a plaintiff's attorney. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, somewhere in three. Uh, but today what we want to do uh, is we want to just talk about the case, how we got involved. Uh, and so we give you good context because I know a lot of you say that we came out and solicited the case. You know, as with every case, we, we have no interest in soliciting cases. We've got enough cases in this office right now to last us, what, a couple of years? Yeah. And so we Quite work really, really, really hard to keep up on every case that comes in here. 
and we take every case very seriously. And especially when it hits my desk, um, you know, that's when, how do you guys say in the office, it gets ratcheted up? Is that fair? I don't know if ratchet's the word to use, but yeah, what, what something you, of that nature. What words would you use? Quit being nice. Revved up? Revved up. That'd be, a, that'd be a good word, too. You know, I, I am the lead investigator in here. My name's on the front door. My name's on all the legal forms. And, uh, you know, I, I, I believe, and I've always believed, and I will continue to always believe, as long as I'm involved in this firm, and my name's on the front door. Uh, that uh, I will give 100% and 150% the missing, and uh, I'll give 150% to my clients and to those around the United States that uh, enlist our firm, both governmental and uh, in, in private. So, um, you know, that's what we're known for. That's why we've been around for 32 years. So, in fact, this month is the 32nd year anniversary of this firm. Did you know that? In July, I think, in or July. June, July. July. Yep. So uh, that's exciting. Um, and so 32 years, folks, 32. So I'm <clears throat> patting our, our crew on the back a little bit. Uh, and uh, we, uh, we're very excited to be around 32 years. I, not very many firms make it 32 years, but ours has. So that's great. Uh, so anyway, so let's get started. Um, so we're going to start with the initial phone call. Well, yeah, I, I, that's where I'd like to go all the way back, if you don't mind that we go back all the way to the initial phone call. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. So um, we are kind of sitting around uh, in the office one afternoon, just came out of a meeting, and I remember it like it was yesterday, uh, in uh, uh, September of 2015. And we just got out of a staff meeting, and I was walking down the hall, and Caroline came bebopping down the hall and said, uh, hey, uh, we've got a caller on the phone regarding a case uh, that's uh, all over the media uh, called the Dior Coons case. What does that have to do with us? Of course, in my normal snarky tone. And um, Caroline said, well, it, it's, it's, it's a child. It's a two-year-old. And, of course, when anybody ever says two-year-old, that kind of perks my ears up a little bit because I have grandchildren and I've had children. And, you know, I don't want to see any child suffer or be hurt. And um, the caller was from uh, <clears throat> two ladies in, uh, in Canada. One lady that was right across the border of Idaho, and it was a national uh, case already. And so we were like, "Well, you know, what's that all about?" So uh, that's when it first started. Um, and um, and so the case she told us about was about two parents that decided they were going to go camping with their grandfather and another person up to uh, the uh, area called Lead Door. Now, everybody kids me because I always say Lidor, but it's Leddor, uh, Idaho. And uh, they packed their stuff up, began packing on a Wednesday, uh, and then decided to head up that way uh, in uh, that fateful day uh, in, uh, in uh, 2015. Uh, and it was the July, just post the July 4th weekend. So uh, they didn't call us until September or October of 2015 after some of the people in the public were concerned that the um, Limhigh County Sheriff's Department wasn't doing their job, which is completely false. These guys uh, headed now by uh, a great man that, I, that we'll talk about here in a little bit, uh, but uh, they, uh, they, they, they really started out doing a great job and, and it 
and they did all the right things, but you know, the, the time clock was against them. So um, we looked at the case, and I told gave Caroline the green light to make some contacts and do what she needed to do to um, to garner the case. So um, she put uh, a little briefing together for me on the next Monday morning, and uh, and what we call at the table, we all sat down and we began to discuss uh, the case and what we needed to do uh, to prep the case. Uh, interestingly enough, for about um, I'd say, what, Carolina, a month, maybe a month and a half. Um, the family was just not interested in us getting involved. I mean. Well, I think they had somebody that they, and, and everybody knows who she is. It's public information. Um, but Jen Thiel from Canada, she's the one that called us. She's the one that, you know, inquired and kind of told us a little bit and asked if we would be interested in the case or if we'd be willing to take the case. Then from there, um, we said yes, but we would have to speak to the parents that we would have to have a family member be our client. Um, and so that's what started communications between Jessica and Vernal, more so Vernal than Jessica at that point. Yeah, Jessica didn't want to interact with us from get go. And um, it was quite interesting that, that you know, we, we, in fact, I think that was the first discussion we had in the room. Why isn't the mommy uh, proactive? Why the mommy? I mean, if she's going to get, if they're going to accept money from the public, and let's explain that. So what we decided to do, and I'll explain that first, is what we decided to do was we said, well, the parents didn't have any money, and then the grandfather, who was involved at the time, didn't have any money. So what we wanted to do was say, okay, look, just cover our expenses. And now I've been blessed in my life to have a very successful company. A lot of you can assume that after 31 years, this company has done very well for itself. And so we put aside uh, a certain set of money uh, every year uh, to uh, take on uh, a case or cases, we try for two a year, that um, people, quite frankly, just can't afford. Um, you know, it's, it's not that we're uh, uh, highly expensive, but it's that, you know, a lot of people can't afford uh, private investigators, and I say serious private investigators that do a that do a uh, a yeoman's job, uh, and so my guys do a yeoman's job. I'm very proud of them, like I've said before in all these podcasts. And so, Caroline began to negotiate and uh, with uh, and talk to uh, the public. And so, why don't you talk, Caroline, a little bit about that and uh, the negotiations and and how the money actually got into a fund and and go that way. Yeah. So once um, once we heard from Vernal and we had conversations and, and both Vernal and his father, Dennis Kuntz, um, decided that they wanted to move forward in hiring us. Um, that's when we started talking about cost. Um, we had a GoFundMe set up for client investigations that assist um, in cost for missing children. It's a donation account. Um, and so we set this up because, again, as Philip explained, a lot of families just can't hire um, somebody that's serious and that specializes in these types of jobs. Um, so what we did was um, we put it out there. We explained um, to the family how it would work. Um, they could use the GoFundMe account to uh, have money collected by our firm um, and then just use Dior's name in the comment section so we knew to apply the money to Dior's case. Um, and then I also provided a list, and I do this with any client that calls for missing children, missing persons, and even some of our big-time um, 
homicide cases and things of that nature, um, that they are able to look into uh, doing some of these fundraising ideas. For instance, bake sales. Um, I think uh, the Kuntzes did, um, or I guess the Kuntz family, Dior's family, um, did a luncheon where they had like an auction raffle. So uh, t-shirts, bracelets, all sorts of different ways that you can fundraise to get money. Um, and so they did. They, I think a collective, a collective effort, um, mostly, if I remember correctly, led by Trina Clegg, which is Jessica's mother. Um, and they were successful. And they had a lot of support from um, the public. They had a lot of support from around the nation. Um, and a lot of support from their hometown city. So that's the financial side. Now, I want to reiterate again. Our goal was $25,000 that would be applied to travel, housing. Uh, bringing our search dog in. Bringing and his the hurts. search dog in. Uh, bringing Trey Sargent in from, from Georgia. Um, and, and bringing our team together, basically, to investigate this case. At no time, and I want the public to know, at no time did I ever charge that account for any investigator hourly, any retainers we paid to the senior staff being the folks from Georgia, the folks from uh, California, all the people that have been involved in this case, KIC Texas did not make one dime off this case. In fact, as came out in court documents, this firm put in to the case of its own money just over $130,000 towards this case. So when you hear all the dribble-drabble that comes out of some of these Karens out of Washington State and California who don't know what they're talking about, who try to put their nose in something they, they probably should have never put their nose into. You understand clearly that we have $130,000 of our skin involved in this case. So I want to make sure that you, the public, understand that this is one of the cases that we chose. In fact, it was the only case for one year because we were putting so much money into travel to Utah, I mean to Utah, to, to Idaho. We did Sorry fly to Utah. Sorry to share, Carmen. <laughs> uh, but but all, all of, the, uh, all of the, uh, the, the monies that we put into this case, we, we, we dedicated all the money that we put aside for those kind of cases to pay the staff um, to, to, um, to do the analysis work, to do the... Uh, crime scene work, reproduction work, and there's so many things behind the scenes, timelines, et cetera, work product, uh, all that money uh, we put in ourselves. And uh, I, I just say that because there has been so much misinformation put out from some of these crazy Karens uh, up, in, uh, up in Washington State, and one in particular out of California who I, who I think she's just frankly mentally ill. Um, and uh, so I just wanted to make sure that the, you know, the public knows and the media knows and everybody knows, because again, this is going to be a, a very well listened to podcast uh, uh, around the United States. And in fact, quite frankly, around the world, uh, this case, we get mail from Europe, Africa, uh, Asia, we get, we get mail all the time uh, regarding this case from all over the world. So it's, it's a worldwide case. And so 
that we want to be accurate today and for the next uh, three uh, podcasts we want to be accurate so uh so uh, there was a time period between um uh, october 2015 and november of uh, 2015 where caroline coordinated uh, fundraising for the $25,000 for transportation costs uh and, and housing costs um, finally, an engagement letter uh, was sent on November 23 of 2015, um, and social media arrangements, contracts were signed, uh, media contracts were signed, uh, financial agreement and payments, uh, and of course a non-disclosure agreement was signed uh, by um, who was selected uh, in the whole matter, which was the grandfather, Dennis Coons. Now, a lot of you may say, well, you already suspected Vernal and Jessica from the beginning. No, we did not. Remember, we don't know anybody when we come into a case. When we come into a case, you've got to assume what people tell you is the truth from the get-go. And so what we did was we, we took everybody on their face value, and, and we took Vernal and Jessica on their face value. And I'm going to get to that here in just a but we decided Dennis Coons. Now let us tell you why we, we, we selected the grandfather to be on the contract. The reason the grandfather was on the contract was is because we knew his whereabouts when the child went missing. We had already heard his statement, and he, quite frankly, Carol, when you say volunteered, he said, look, I don't have anything to do with anything. I'm, I'm down here in another town, what, another 300 miles south of uh, Idaho Falls. Uh, we had already done a pretty little investigation to find out where he was. And so, uh, so Vernal had actually been traveling for work, um, via 18 wheeler, whatever his job was at the time. Um, and Dennis is his father and he was the one that was able to sign the contract and get it back to us in a timely manner. Um, plus we had already been discussing and frankly asked, um, Vernal and not Jessica cause Jessica never really, had any any yeah and from what everything that i am understanding is that the reason why was because the former pi which we will get into in just a few minutes um frank vilt had already said that uh, had already let them go he was the first pi that he already said they were lying to him um and so vernal had brought that up to us and um i think that was also played a part into why dennis signed our contract and just to clarify, uh, because I know this is a common question, there was in, especially in court, which we'll get to that in, I think, episode or uh, part three. But one of the main questions I get all the time is, um, A, why Dennis did, which we just explained, uh, why he signed the contract. But the contract was actually signed by Dennis on November 20th of 2015. After we have a contract signed, it is our common practice that we send what we call an engagement letter that Philip already spoke about that covers a, an array of things, non-disclosure agreements, et cetera. And that is also, and it even read in the line that that is a legal agreement between both parties. Um, it was time stamped, it was dated and signed. Exactly. And the secondary on the professional side, we immediately notify the sheriff of the county in this case, there were two sheriffs involved, uh, one down in uh, uh, Limhigh County, and uh, the second Bonneville. was in Bonneville County, and, um, and, and we sent our engagement letters saying, hello, we're from Texas, this is who we are, this is what we do, please look us up on Child Rescue Network, 
please look us up, uh, you know, just do your basic Google search on us. You can see the cases that we've done. Um, and so, you know, and that's another thing I want to, I want to talk about, you know, some of these little Karens run around saying these guys haven't solved the case. And, you know, let me tell you something, folks, there's an old saying in the CIA and the NSA, uh, there's an old saying that says that uh, some of your best work, uh, the public will never know. Um, that's kind of us, you know, not every case that comes through this office is a national case. Not every case that comes through this office is picked up by the national media. Not every case in the United States that we handle around the United States, or hell, around the world, uh, is, is picked up by any media. So, again, these little Karens don't know what they're talking about. This case sees, what, 1,600 cases a year, mm-hmm. this, this office does. So, you know, again, these people are full of crap. And are they underneath my skin? No. But, you know, the public needs to know. So that's why I'm talking. So once anyway, the sheriff was notified, right? Once of the, the sheriff case. was notified, we, we put a team together immediately. Uh, the team consisted of Caroline Gear was going to be the case manager. Uh, myself, I was going to uh, uh, be the lead investigator on it. Uh, Stephen Hartman, uh, who was our ground operative at the time, uh, was assigned to the case. Uh, Charlie Klein, who in fact is my son, was assigned to the case. Who else? Uh, MJ Holmes uh, was assigned to be the interrogator, uh, and Trey Sargent was the uh, ground operative uh, search uh, operative that put the search team together. So that kind of gives you the five core people that were involved. There are other people that were involved that we kind of in some ways selected not to release their names simply because we don't want to bring them into the tornado because they are ground operatives. They're undercover. They do undercover work uh, for us around the United States. So we really you know, don't want to talk about them, but, um, and that doesn't even include the colleagues that we, uh, that specialize in the same thing as us that we brought in to have a take to, to take, excuse me, to take a look at the case to make sure that we weren't missing something right. that we, it's called, we call that peer review. We bring in people from around the state of Texas that, that do what we do, uh, around the United States. I shouldn't say the state of Texas from, from around the United States to do what we do. And so they peer review us. They look at our work product. They look at how we handle things, we, they look at our psychological side to see if we're doing the right thing psychologically with uh, witnesses and with suspects and, you know, that sort of thing. So, you know, guys, there's a lot of stuff behind the scene that doesn't, that you don't see. But we made contact with the sheriff, and I would say from the beginning, the first sheriff, Sheriff Bowerman, I would say he welcomed us with open arms. He, he kind of, like we said in our first meeting with him, uh, he was like, man, you know, I need all the help I can get on this. We're a small county police department, and we're not, you know, we don't have the resources you do, and uh, whatever you need, we're here. And not only that, but you have to admit that we also um, was working with Bonneville County at the same time, and the sheriff down there uh, had the same kind of attitude, although they kind of were stepped back because at this point, the national media had already picked up on the case. Uh, and it was, uh, it was starting to get a little crazy. So before, so in the meantime, between the contract and fundraising, um, that was done in our first trip, which took place in December of, um, 2015, uh, we also initiated contact with the previous PI, Frank Bilt, and Philip had several conversations with him via the phone. Um, and why don't you tell them a little bit about well, that? Well, that, that just goes to case prep. So when we get a case, what we do is we want to prep first. And we were trying to get the opportunity to get everybody's schedules cleared 
And finally, I just told everybody about uh, what the first week of December, I told everybody, look, just drop your schedules. Uh, I'm making plane reservations for everybody. Caroline got on the phone. We got airplanes spun up uh, and let's get everybody in the air and let's get on over to uh, uh, Idaho Falls. Uh, let's fly in there and then let's set up a beachhead and, and let's start let's start this case and get interviews done. Now, between November the 23rd and uh, when we arrived for the first time on December the 14th, you know, that's uh, what, uh, two weeks, almost uh, maybe three, um, we did all our case prep. And then case prep just does a couple of things. Number one, who the players are, the basic beginning timeline, okay? We didn't put a timeline together, but we put a basic beginning timeline together. We interviewed a few folks, and then we set it up. Caroline began to set up what we call interview process. So we had a beachhead over at, uh, can I say the name of the hotel? This is kind of where we stay every time we're up there. At the Holiday Inn over by the mall in Idaho Falls. They worked with us wonderfully. And I can't, let me just give a shout out to, um, to Holiday Inn. What's the name of their parent company? IAH or IH? IHG. Uh, IHG. Yeah. Let, let me tell you, they found out we were at the hotel or were going to the hotel. Uh, they, We received a phone call from them that said, look, anything you guys need, you tell us we're here for you. Uh, they set us up a room. They set us up a war room. They set us up a uh, hotel rooms. Uh, they, they, didn't you think they treated us very nice? Yeah, I mean, they I did. I want to make sure we shout out the people that really help. So, yeah. you know, you guys out there that travel a lot, remember those folks at the Holiday Inn, especially the folks that the, uh, it's IHG, right? IHG. <laughs> IHG. Uh, that, that group. So let's get to, let's get to the meat of the matter. So before we got on the plane and we flew up here, uh, up to Idaho Falls, we um, did a certain amount of interviews on the phone to be able to preface what I was trying to say before, which is that we were we were getting ready to, to the for the war room. Before we walk into anywhere, everyone always needs to remember, good investigators know the answers to the questions before we ask them. So we did an extensive interview with Frank Biltz. Now, a lot of people don't know that we talked to Mr. Biltz a couple times on the phone, and we, we, we asked him, you know, hey, Frank, tell us a little bit about your case, what happened. And he went into, and let's just do the short story on it. Look, these guys were lying to me. They didn't want me to start a, uh, a fund, a reward fund, in case the child was kidnapped, that we would have a reward fund because whenever a child's kidnapped, you know, somebody's going to want big money. And, um, you know, he said they wouldn't let me do that. Um, and then he said I started catching them in lies. And so that kind of piqued my interest a little bit. So, well, why would these people lie? Again, sometimes it's not really a lie in some of these cases. Sometimes people can't remember because of the trauma of a, a missing child. Uh, Caroline can probably tell you a little bit about that in a nutshell. That, that people people just kind of lose their minds. Yeah, I think it's um, an array. You see different reactions, different types of things regarding missing children. But I don't know, something just didn't stand out in this case. Yeah, and then and so Caroline and I were flying together, and um, Caroline looked over at me and said, you know, if, if you really look at this, why would a seasoned U.S. Marshal tell us that they're lying? And, you know, Frank had been a U.S. Marshal, a decorated U.S. Marshal, just not a U.S. Marshal, but a decorated U.S. Marshal. Uh, and there's a difference, right? Some people just go through... The motions, as they say in law enforcement, and some people are above and beyond 
reproach and builds us above and beyond reproach. And so, uh, you know, when I was talking to Frank, he said, look, he said, I'm not telling you they did it, but when you interview them, you know, you need to take a good hard look at them and, 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 uh, and, uh, and listen to what they say. And of course, we promised we'd share with Bills, uh, and we did. Mm-hmm. We shared uh, our information with some of our information, not all of it. So anyway, the bottom line is this. We got up to uh, Idaho Falls on uh, December the 13th, actually, uh, and we began our operation on December the 14th. Uh, there were three investigators that arrived. It was myself, Caroline Gear, and MJ Holmes, who was the interrogator. Uh, MJ couldn't be for the first interview. She couldn't get there for it, uh, but she uh, uh, she did arrive for the second interview with Jessica, right? Uh, she was there yes. with Jessica and, and, uh, and everybody, and let, let just set up the interview room. So the interview room is set up, whereas the investigators are sitting on one side of the, uh, uh, of the table, and that's authoritarian. We want to make sure we're authoritarian. This isn't a this isn't a tea and crumpet meeting. This is a, hey, we've got a kid missing. You're the parents. You know, tell us what's going on. And it gives, uh, it gives an opportunity for what we call tag teaming. Now, tag teaming is, a, is, is an interrogation method where what we do and what they teach us in interrogation schools is, is we use a technique that uh, we have a good fairy, we have a mean fairy, and we have a questioner. And so Caroline, as always, is the good fairy uh, in the room. On these cases, uh, MJ Holmes is the uh, is the person that uh, is the question fire, and of course, as always, I am the uh, the mean guy. I guess I guess because I play it so well. Um, anyway, so we uh, started talking. So our first interview was with um, with uh, and I like to call him Dior Coons, but it's Bernal Coons. Uh, our first interview was with Vernal Coons. The interview lasted what three hours? It was about three hours. But before we interviewed Vernal, it, I, I think it's important to go back to the uh, family meeting. There was a family meeting over at just uh, let's see Trina Clegg's house, which is Jessica's mother, and it was Philip and I. And we went, I believe it was that morning, and then Vernal's interview was that night. And it was our first time. We sat down. Um, we just wanted to introduce ourselves. We wanted to meet the family. And I remember there being quite a few people. I mean, probably a good, what, 12 people um, that were in the room. And of course, Philip goes over everything, says, you know, kind of lays out how we work, what we do, what our interview process was going to be and who all was going to come in and do their individual interviews. Um, But I remember, and this is also when I collected uh, the written witness statements from both uh, Bernal and Jessica. And I think it's important to note here the dynamics between everyone, who stood out, who didn't, who was cooperative, who wasn't. Um, And I I don't know, why don't you tell us if you feel the same way, um, Philip, but what about the way that Jessica and Bernal sitting on that love seat and they were holding hands. And I, that was the first time that I noticed that there was not one tear shed in my presence. You know, it was a, it was a surreal meeting, let's just put it that way, where we had one side of the room that was radical, that wanted us to solve the case. They were behind us 100%. 
when you talk to me, a lot of people are turned off when you talk to me because basically I'm, I'm a very strong-willed individual, and I'll say things that other people won't say. And one of the things I said in that meeting is, you're either going to love me or you're going to hate me. Um, turned out they hated me, uh, but basically because we were getting to the truth. But, the, but what happened was I told them, look, this is, the, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to interview. This is where you're going to go. Uh, we've got, uh, what, we had 96 hours on the ground to, to get a lot of work done. And so we told them all that this is, this is what was going to happen. Now, we talked about, we went around the room. It's a little technique we use. We, we went around the room and let anybody talk that wanted to talk. And as Caroline said, it was very surreal that Jessica and Vernal were sitting next to each other. And I remember it because... Vernal was sitting on the love seat, and Jessica was sitting in between his legs, and they were holding hands kind of in a reverse way. So, like, Jessica had her hand up on Vernal's leg, and he was holding her hand, but there was not one bit of emotion. Now, folks, I've been doing this 31 years, 32 years now. I can tell you there is not one missing child's case that I have been to where there has not been extreme emotion in the room. Now, with that said, uh, Vernal's sister, um, Tanisha, Tanisha um, was in the room, and she was very emotional. She, she cried. She she acted like there was a missing child. Trina showed a little bit of emotion, not a lot, but a little bit of emotion. So you know, you kind of got to see the mother daughter type thing, uh, but at least Trina showed some emotion. There were a couple of men in the room that shed tears. Um, you know, people that interacted with Dior on a day-to-day -day basis. But mom and dad didn't shed a tear. They shed no emotion. And then when we got in the car, the first thing we did was close the doors, looked at each other, and went, oh, God, you know, the, the, we got a problem here. Yeah, what did we just step into? What, yeah, what did we just get into? I think into? those were my exact words to you. I think that, that was your exact words. And so we got over to the hotel, and that night we started the interviews. So... The first person we interviewed was Vernal. Now, Vernal comes into the interview all happy-go-lucky. Is it, you know, one of the things we look for is your emotions when you walk into a room. You're fixing to walk into the room to one of the best interrogators in the United States. Uh, you know, MJ Holmes is, is probably maybe one of the best. And when you walk in, there's things we look for, such as your nervous attributes. Caroline, why don't you talk about that? You're, you're into the psychology side. Well, you look for the for some of the the basic um, forms of communication in which they which they exhibit um, some mannerisms. How how they're looking at things? Are they shaking? Are they not shaking? Um, are they nervous? Are they uh, calm, cool, and collective? Are they crying? Crying? Are they, <laughs> they zero <laughs> emotions? Um, there's a lot of different things to look for, and I think with with Vernal, that was the first one that you and I did. Right. Um, and MJ wasn't there yet. It was three and a half hours uh, long. And I and, took the lead on it. Yes. And I remember sitting in a chair behind you. And I, in interviews, I think it's pretty common knowledge at this point that I look during interviews for their mannerisms. I don't, I guess what I'm referred to as the good fairy, you could say, mm -hmm. but I really sit back and I look at how they react to certain questions um, and what mannerisms they use throughout the process of their interview. 
um, and different things of that nature. And I'm pretty good. I'd say, I don't know. I personally pat myself on the back on this one can pretty much tell when someone's lying about Mm -hmm. whatever they're saying. You are very good at that. And I remember his interview, we had completed it. He had left and I said, he's lying about certain aspects of his story. And that's really where I would say I started questioning the events of what happened up at the camp. I think in, in that, and I think that, we were able to elicit during the interview some information that he had never told the police, such as the story of little Dior going over to the back wheel of the truck and there was a lug nut missing. And he said, Daddy, lug nut missing. And Vernal told us the story about little Dior putting his arm in the tailpipe and getting solid black all over him and all over his arm. Coincidentally, coincidentally, that was the same area where blood was found by the FBI and by Limhigh County uh, in the wheel basin and on the back bumper. Um, and so I think that that was um, when law enforcement watched our interview of him and we communicated with law enforcement uh, of that event, I think that's when they went, oh, oh, you know, that's when they, Sheriff Bowerman got serious and he said, okay, I think we've got a major problem here with yeah, and I also think that it's important to note that um, that was not, it was his first interview, but I had already had the written statement that he had produced to us, right? right? So right. he gave a, a written statement, both him and Jessica gave written statements, not only to law enforcement the day he went missing or the week, you know, days after he went missing. But whenever we take a case, we always say we want written statements from the parents about what happened. Now tell um, them why. There's two reasons. Reason one is that we look for the way you write, okay? We do a writing analysis on you. Mm-hmm. We take a look at how your, your verbiage, the layout of events, and your actual penmanship. If you'll note, we do not allow anyone to type a report. Correct. We, we have a handwriting analysis person that we use out of Florida that they, we send it down to them and tell us they can tell by the way you use your penmanship whether or not you're lying or telling the truth. Uh, MJ Holmes is very good at this. She takes a look at the writing and she, uh, if you're crossing words out, you're crossing events out, you're changing up words and events, we can tell mm-hmm. how, you, how you're doing things. Yep. And so, take it, and the second reason is, is for the obvious work product, to see if what you're telling us today is the same thing you told law enforcement or that you'll tell us in the future. Oh, you'll tell us in the future, absolutely. So, so it's work product and then what is said and how you say it. So take it from there. So we already knew that after, and I, I think this is where I was really confident after Vernal's interview, that what he was telling us in his interview didn't exactly match up to what his written statement was to us back in November. But you got to remember, it's the little things we look for. Yeah. And it was the little things and then what we call add-ons. So if I'm in a room with the police department 
and I'm in the room with the FBI, and I'm giving a statement about my child missing, I'm going to remember every little facet. And when he told us the story about the lug nut on the back wheel of the car with the hand in the tailpipe, right where blood, and remember, we didn't know about the blood. Law enforcement hadn't told us about the blood yet. But telling us about that incident and then us reporting that incident to the law enforcement before we left that week, they called a meeting with us at a local Mexican food restaurant. Yeah, I think it was the last night that we the were last there. Last night they said, hey, we want to talk to you guys. You guys are getting information that we're not getting. We want to meet. And everyone was there. Bowerman, the FBI. Uh, I mean, every law enforcement was the there. The current sheriff of the current Illinois sheriff, was there. Uh, and, the and detective from Bonneville. The detective from Bonneville. All the law enforcement was there. And we got a nice table and we sat down and we all started talking a little bit mm -hmm. and then they said well you need to know that you elicited something that matches what we're worried about and we said well you know i think it was jane that said what you know what are you talking about and they said well we found blood in the in wheel well and on the back yeah. bumper of the bodily fluid bodily too. fluids as well yeah and so we were like oh my god here we go um and so um you know that put kind of our first trip together with vernal now, uh, I think we have enough time to discuss a little bit about Jessica. Let's talk about Jessica. Well, so so the individual interviews that we did after Vernal, also, they were all in the next day. And, and I'm just going to name who we interviewed because I think it's important that the public knows at this point, which it was all in our discovery of um, in, the lawsuit. in the lawsuit. So that's why we're making all of this public. Um, obviously, Jessica was the very next one. We also met with Trina and Jeremy Clegg. Um, we met with both sisters, Vernal's sister, Tanisha, and Jessica's sister, Mariah, and Mariah's husband, Taylor. Um, we met with Grandpa Bob and then Aunt Lynn Williams. Um, and I think we'll, in part, I believe it's in part two, we'll get into the um, Aunt Lynn Williams, who uh, most of you know, if not all of you know by this point, that um, she was one of the last people that physically saw Dior that and we can account for. And that's why we for. wanted to interview. Right. Because she's the last person. Now, folks, let me tell y'all something. She was the last person that saw Dior. Now, I want everybody to know that was on, I believe, what was it, the July the... It would have either been July 7th or July 8th for yeah, dinner. July, I think it was July 8th was the last time we've got her on our timelines that she admits she's the last person. Now, mom and dad both say, well, I saw him. And Trina says, well, I saw him. But... You know, they tell us they went to Walmart on the way to uh, Le Door. Um, folks, we went through, law enforcement went through, everybody went through every single camera there is to have around, and there was no Dior. I'm telling you, this is the first time you may be hearing about this, but the cameras all over Walmart, all over the gas station they said they went to, all over, up and down the road that leads to the, the bar, highway. I'm sorry. The bar and the bar, door, Mud Lake. Mud Lake, everywhere between A and B. No one physically saw no a child. There is no Dior. Now, we've never released that before, but we're releasing it today because we think it's important. You know, the big stories that were put out where, oh, he sat in the car and we got diesel. Well, the guy from the diesel place, he never saw a child. And he was right at the door. And I mean, right got, at that and second. remember, folks, we get all this under videotape, and we get this all under sworn statements. Sworn statements. 
and no one saw that child. Vernal went into a big crock and bull story about the beer truck driver that drives an 18-wheeler, right? He's a beer truck driver. Mm -hmm. That drives an 18-wheeler and delivers uh, beer to... Uh, and told us the company of the, the told name us of the... the company name and all this other stuff. There wasn't even a beer truck near that area on that date and time, number one. But number two, we found the actual driver. And I interviewed, I interviewed the driver and said, hey, did you did a little boy get set up in the front seat of your of your 18-wheeler when you were making the delivery? And the answer was, what are you talking about? I've never had a little boy up in the 18-wheeler. And when Dior was confronted, with, I'm, I'm sorry, when Vernal was confronted with this, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, you know, we, and we'll get into that family meeting because that was what the first time we met uh, What's this pinhead lawyer's name? Um, oh, God. Alan. Alan. Well, whatever. I can't remember his name right now, but we'll have an important <laughs> I want to say Alan Mitchell, but it's uh, not Alan so Mitchell. It's, it's Alan something else. Yeah, anyway, uh, he's a pinheaded lawyer up there that had, he had a goal, and we'll talk about that goal in the lawsuits, uh, part three of the lawsuit, uh, part three of the podcast. Uh, but anyway, the bottom line is when he was confronted with it, that's when he lawyered up. That's when Vernal started lawyering up, when he, he figured out that we had not one, but two receipts from the stage stop. We had interviews with the beer truck driver. We had interviews with an 18-wheeler. He gave us the name of an 18-wheeler company, an 18-wheeler company. That didn't exist. That didn't exist. That had been out of business for two years. Uh, he gave us, it was all made up information. Uh, and, and, of course, the stage stop lady who we interviewed was a great lady. Got so, to say a lot about that. on the last day of our trip, on our on trip one, the very last day, um, we drove the path that we were, we drove the path from what was provided to us in the witness statements by Jessica and Vernal. We drove all the way up to Ledor. Um, it was snowy. I remember it being very cold in the negatives. And um, we stopped along the way. We checked out these locations where they pulled over at Mud Lake, where they stopped and went into the store and grabbed some uh, chips, where they went in and led or to the stage stop and grabbed different things. And we spoke to these people and, you know, Philip just told you how that ended. But on um, the way back is when we all, I think all three of us agreed that there is something that is just not it's not right. It's not forming. There's no, there's some major red flags here. Um, and then we flew home. We had our, uh, that last night we had our meeting with all the law enforcement. We flew home and we started a master timeline based off of the interviews and the written statements that were provided by the uh, players. Now, remember when they started lying to us or changing their story. There's going to be two sets of timelines. There's going to be timeline to law enforcement, timeline to investigators. So we want you, the public, to understand that you will see discrepancies in there, but it's not from us. It's from the witnesses. And so trip two, we went up there on uh, January 25th, uh, which was less than a month, or a little bit more than a month later. And... I'll never forget. We'd get off that plane and our phone started blowing up and the sheriff had made a statement. So when we got off the airplane, Caroline was the first one to turn her phone on and it started buzzing immediately. And then Jane walked down the 
hallway of the of the airport down in Salt Lake, and she said, "Are y'all seeing this?" And I'm like, "I haven't seen anything. I've been on an airplane for five hours." She says, "Well, you need to look. Turn on your phone." I turned on my phone, and I probably had what 25 media calls. It was crazy. It was crazy. And the sheriff Bowerman had come out, and Sheriff Bowerman said that the parents were let quote quote I'm quoting this less than truthful. And officially are suspects and that was on january 25th of 2016. and folks let me tell you something that started a situation where the family called us immediately they told us they wanted a meeting with us the coons family the coons family wanted a meeting with us um was it Lori coons i think it was Lori coons the, the, the aunt uh, I think Lori's the the uh, mother, but the uh, there's another Coons. Well, anyway, uh, she's related. Anyway, she we found out then that she was footing a bill for a lawyer, um, and and we were like, uh, okay, why does he need a lawyer? I mean, he, he says he's telling us the truth, and she says, well, we want a family meeting, and um, and, and we've got him a uh, we've got him a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, that's probably a pretty smart thing at this point. And the question was asked to us, well, why? Well, everything he's told us, we've not been able to, A, prove up, B, this turned out to be a lie, and C, you know. Various stories. Various stories. So Caroline got him on the phone that night, uh, and it was probably one of the most explosive phone calls that we have not released yet, and FBI and law enforcement has asked us not to release it, and we're going to honor that. Uh, but uh, it was probably one of the most explosive phone calls you will ever hear where uh, Vernal is doing exactly what guilty people do, is blame everybody else and, and not take responsibility. And then he was confronted with the blood pathogens and the, and the body fluids on the truck, and that set him off. Um, and he figured out for the first time, oh, these guys aren't just run-of-the-mill investigators. These guys really know what they're doing. And, uh, and, and I will tell you, that is, uh, that's when it all uh, blew up. And, and then we made another trip out to uh, Lador, and we talked to the bar folks. We talked to, the, uh, we talked to a state representative out there that met us. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't know about that. We had uh, some government involvement. Um, pulling us documents. Uh, we talked to the, uh, the wonderful people at the Parks and Recreation. Uh, no, it's not Parks and Recreation. It's the National Parks. Yeah, it's the federal, National. It's National Parks. We're wonderful investigators out there with them. Um, and, of course, uh, Carl Noah and his team from, uh, from, Bonneville. Uh, uh, from uh, Bonneville. Bonneville County. Uh, and, of course, at that point, uh, there was going to be a changeover in sheriffs uh, coming up. And so... Uh, we met uh, Penner, uh, Sheriff Penner, who I, I got to tell everybody again. I, I, I hate to do this, but uh, you know, because they, they all get mad at me when I do it. But I, I just think Sheriff Penner is probably one of the salt of the earth people, and he's just one of the greatest. Uh, and that's when everybody started clamming up. And and I will tell you all this: uh, at that point, we knew what we were dealing with. We were new, dealing with two parents. Um, um, that what you don't know is we're brought it back in by the FBI. And this is kind of the scariest thing, is uh, on our trip from January 25th to 29th, uh, the FBI, uh, Lim High, and Bonneville County brought Jessica and Vernal back in. They had Jessica in a room 
for probably what six seven eight hours and she was right at the point according to everything we heard she was right at the point to wanting to give her story her the real story up uh and um for some reason she clammed back up we don't know why i did watch the videotape of it um it's surreal to watch her you know for the first time actually get close to to wanting to tell her story and then she clammed back up um but we watched that we watched uh we watched vernal because he was under surveillance at the time uh, the uh, law enforcement and our team had him under surveillance at the time uh and uh, these guys packed their car up after jessica now if i've just been interviewed by the fbi for eight hours what am I going to do? I'm going to go either A, get a drink somewhere, get something to eat, go home and go to bed because my mind's going to be spinning, right? I mean, after watching that video, I, I don't know. Yeah. But or... they didn't do that. What they did was Vernal put her in the car and they went over to a sex toy shop and bought a product called something my winky. What's it called? Clone your willy. Clone my willy. There you go. Clone my willy. Caught on surveillance. Caught on surveillance tape, which we have. Caught, I mean, our undercover investigators were following them. The federal, I don't know what it was, state investigators were following them. They were under surveillance. And what's the first thing they do? They go to a sex shop and your child's missing? I mean, it's sick. You can't, you, you, you just can't make it up. You, you just can't make it up. A Hollywood producer couldn't sit out on the west coast and make this story up you, you just it's it's beyond anything that you'd ever dream of seeing and i think i don't know what you what do you think at the time would you when when they were radioing us and telling us what was going on what well i got the phone call thought? sitting here in my office and i i immediately i thought wait what and um so that's when i called one of the detectives and i said hey this is what's going on. And that's, I think, when the surveillance was pulled and that's when everything was confirmed. And it was literally, it was on a Sunday. It was a Sunday mm -hmm. at 11, or 11, 11, 11.30 a.m. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as a parent of a two-year-old at that point in time, I had a two-year-old at the time that this was occurring. And um, I just sat, I, I, I hugged my child and loved on my child way more than probably I ever had. Um, just sitting there thinking how a mother and a father that have a missing child could be so nonchalant about it and so with that what we'll do is we will let you all kind of ponder on what we've told you we'll go to part two uh upcoming uh next week and um and we want you to know that at that point was the first time we suspected jessica mitchell and Vernal Coons could be a suspect, and they were involved. So uh, we left Lador. I mean, I'm sorry. We left uh, Bonville County that day, and we left behind two undercover investigators. And we'll talk about that in the next series, which will be coming up next week. So we hope you all have a good week. We'll talk to you uh, what uh, in about seven days. Yep. We'll see you then, and make sure. to get questions emailed called in or check our instagram page make sure you're following us at the klein files and subscribe and give us a good review we'll talk to you then bye